0: I believe? Yes, episode five, season four. Uh, joining me today is actually one of my mentors at Brooklyn College. Manuel Simons is a theater professor at Brooklyn College. He, I want to say he started there maybe a few years ago or so, because I remember taking an uh, acting workshop it was like one of those acting workshop classes that was kind of like bunched together. So, I when I took the class, I, I immediately thought, oh, wait a minute, there's acting workshop one. And then when I took the class there, it was like, man, was like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. It's the same class, just don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. And yeah, from Manuel's uh, expertise and guidance, I was really able to hone myself as an actor especially with the limited amount of time you have as a student per semester because if it's a fall semester that time is actually go by so quick if it's on a winter semester you have some time still because winter semesters are notoriously long and dreadful but once you know it's because it's still in the winter i mean not winter semester spring semester sorry i i still think as the spring semester as winter semester because it's like One half is literally still winter, and then by the time you get into the other half of the semester, it's literally spring semester, so it's like, and the winter semesters are literally like three weeks or so, give or take. But, Manuel, how did you get into theater?
1: Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on your show, on your podcast. I'm happy to be here with you, Brian. Thank you. Uh, I So, my origin story of how I got into somewhere. It's always a, a powerful question for me and, and maybe for a lot of other people, too. Um, so I grew up in Philadelphia, out outside of the city, more in the suburbs. Um, and I am a gay person. Um, I identify as a gay non-binary person and I didn't know anybody else like me. So I always loved theater, um, but I I didn't have much of a community in which to explore it. So when I was little, I would um, perform little shows in my living room and I would hide behind the drapes in the in the living room and come out and perform shows. And um, I would, in the bathroom, I would hide behind the shower curtain and then move the shower curtain aside and start performing when people walked in the bathroom, shocking everybody. Um, So I always loved to talk and I always loved to perform. Um, And I, I didn't really have, there weren't very many artistic outlets where i grew up so there wasn't there wasn't much performing arts in in my schools um and i didn't have a lot of friends to kind of put a club together or anything like that there weren't things that culture wasn't really um culture and the arts wasn't really um accessible to me very much as a child so yeah. i um at the same time, I was grappling with my my sexual orientation and my identity and gender issues and um, felt very isolated and felt very alone growing up. So at a certain point in my teen years, it got so bad for me that I actually thought about ending my own life. Yeah. And uh, I, at that time, I was in middle school and I was being beaten up a lot and I was being yeah. physically abused in school by kid, other, other children and, um, you know, uh, being emotionally abused also and being called yeah. names and ostracized and um, made to feel that I was not a human being really.
0: Yeah, I, growing up, especially in the, it, it, there's this thing about middle school, where it's, still, yeah, I mean, like middle school, junior high school, what have you call it, a lot more kids can be very vindictive, even just because they just want to be. And, you know, I, I was a bullying victim, uh, especially for four years or so, because I had a really, uh, I know uh, i had to literally stop going to school one day and then the school was like okay i didn't know what to do so they they homeschooled me for like the rest of the year and then i had to go to another school to finish up my uh the grade which was i believe eighth grade yeah so i literally missed by the time i went to by the time i graduated from the eighth grade i was it was like literally a year later so yeah it, it's no there's something about middle school where children, where kids can be still horrible, but there could be also kids who could still be wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's very weird because there are teachers who do their best to, you know, help people. And sure enough, you do one of the best jobs as a, uh, not only as a professional, but as a human being too. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, anytime. And, yeah,
1: it, it's... But, yeah... Uh, so this is actually leading me to how I got into theater. So, so uh, you know, when I was young too, this was prior to this was way prior to the times when bullying in schools became more of an issue. Yeah, you know, this was back in the day when they just said, "Oh, boys will be boys, and you just have to toughen up." and um, deal with it nobody nobody intervened, and it was yeah. also, it was also um, before the days when homeschooling was even an option we didn 't even know what that was back then we didn't there was no word for it yeah it um, so so I was really depressed at that time, and it was right around that time that i finally saw an audition for something in the philadelphia inquirer which is the paper that is still the the major paper in in philadelphia and uh i begged my father to take me to this audition and i got him to agree and i got into this play almost from the first rehearsal, the first day that I stepped into the theater to rehearse, uh, I was in a different world. I met people for the first time in my life. I met other people who were like me. I felt that I met other people who were outsiders, who were marginalized and who wanted to perform, and they embraced me. So the theater was where I found a sense of belonging. Yeah. Further, I could be anybody I wanted to be. That, that excited me. Because live, being myself and living my reality was not always a safe place for me. Yeah. I found an environment of imagination where I could really exercise my imagination and be welcomed Do so and be and be different, and being different was okay, and being different was celebrated. So that saved my life. So that's kind of my point: is that when people say the theater or the arts saved my life, sometimes they mean it figuratively,
0: yeah,
1: abstract. But I, in my case, it was literal. I really believe that had I not gotten into that play. That I actually may have ended my life. And what happened was, after that play, I then auditioned for the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts, and I got accepted into that school. And it was the only school, it was two hours away from my home. Yeah. It was the only school outside of my local public high school that I had um, applied to. The Performing Arts High School was also a public school, but it was one that you had to apply to special to. Yeah, I I believe that if I had gone to my local high school, I either would have been killed by someone else, or I would have killed myself. And I went to this Performing Arts High School, and even and there, an even larger world um, of it's like opened up, opened up exactly opened up to me. And I found my people. I found my tribe. I found where I belong. Yeah, that was the beginning of of my development in theater. And then I had an amazing drama teacher in in high school, and his name was Jerry Sossaman. and he was a very eccentric, uh, very colorful, um, openly gay man who was wonderful and a talented uh, man who had had a career in um, New York, uh, working um, on Broadway shows. He had spent time in Hollywood. He had amazing stories. He was a true man of the theater. He was sort of a Renaissance person. So he uh, did costuming, and he did sets, and he taught acting, and he was um, an actor and a writer he he was multi-talented and he also was open to all types of theater so he introduced me to everything from you know the most absurd plays theater of the absurd Pirandello six characters in search of an author um, to the most you know traditional kinds of plays. Yeah. Plays of A.R. Gurney and *The Dining Room* um, and everything in between. He he introduced me to a lot of work by Sam Shepard, um, both his his more um, his more abstract works and his more realistic works. He introduced me to Lorraine Hansberry and um, so many other great playwrights and, of course, um, introduced me to ancient Greek theater and Shakespeare um, and really opened my mind to the possibilities of theater at that time. Then um, I was encouraged through through my high school experiences to continued my theater studies, so I, I by that point I decided I wanted to be an actor yeah so I knew that I had to go to New York um, so I I auditioned and got into the um, NYU's undergraduate drama program so that's where I did my BFA and I had ups and downs there uh, it was a challenging place to be at 18 years old so yeah
0: uh, not to interrupt you, but it's like every time I hear about NYU, it's like it's people will say it's a interesting place to study academically, but it's also an interesting place just socially and just you know, uh, I guess uh, creatively wise because like. I've only been to NYU, especially for some of their theater stuff, like maybe a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And that was only at one of their black box theaters, which I forgot what it was called, but it was like the black box. It's literally like a black box theater. That's just like a, it could be, sh- it, it could be like literally a, a theater like this, where it's just like, you're on this side, you're on this side, you're on this side, you're on this side. Or it could be like a straightforward theater. Right. Whereas it's just like, you're here, you're here, you're here. That stages right here or yeah. something like that and and it's weird because i would i would go like this is like really good acting because like you know i've always heard about nyu acting i was like oh it's nyu acting it's like they're probably gonna be very prestigious or something like that you know they're gonna be like you know, i go to nyu that sort of thing like you know it's like when you hear oh yeah i go to nyu it's like they have that very prestigious type of thing or if someone goes oh yeah i go to columbia they're like oh yeah they have like that, that little uh and hmm. this stuff yeah you know, not to say you don't but you know it's like uh <laughs> but i would see these NYU plays and i'm like these are damn good i'm like mm-hmm. and but i would always hear about oh if you go to NYU, it's good you gotta have either a good time there or a troubling time there and there's no in-betweens it's like the, the it's like yeah, there's no in between so where you go with MYU. It's like, oh, you're gonna have a great time there, you're gonna have a horrible time there. There's no in between. So and I know with the BFA program there, it's like it's like one of those, it's like one of the best the best places to go if you wanna be a like like a legitimate like a legit uh, actor in New York. It's like if you wanna be there, you go to the Test School of Acting, I believe, or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that
1: so, and, and that was what I wanted at the time, and I was determined to go there. I think the price that you pay um, financially and emotionally can be high. Yes. So at the time that I went there, which was in the 1980s, and things probably are very different now, but at the time that I went there, it was an extremely competitive environment, and you weren't provided with a lot of guidance or a lot of nurturing. A, so you were kind of thrown into very um, competitive and professional environments, and there wasn't a, a whole lot of support for people who were still teenagers um, and doing uh, some very intense emotional emotionally um, emotionally um, rigorous and um, Personal work, and so I mean the training was was happening on a very high level, and the training was was really strong, but there was it it, it wasn't supported by guidance and nurturing. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I felt I couldn't always get the most out of the training that that I was receiving. Um, and and there were a lot of issues. There there were issues of racism, and there were issues of homophobia and transphobia that were very pervasive. I mean, they were they 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 have been and they continue to be very pervasive in the in the arts um, community, in the arts industry in this country, and um, and in theater. And at those time at that time, none of those None of those um, isms and none of those forms of oppression were being challenged. Yeah. So it was accepted. It was assumed. You know, this is the way it is. Yeah, people weren't really questioning it, except for the people, except for the people who were experiencing the harm. Yeah. So, it, it,
0: yeah, it's it's weird because like in in the early '80s, right before AIDS became like a very bad pandemic, you know, like AIDS became like the like the the stigma that it was in the '1980s. You know, I can imagine the early '80s; it was a very free in time. You could be by yourself or be who you were, that sort of thing. And yeah, at some place like NYU, I, I was like, I wouldn't be surprised if there was like the type of like. Uh, what's the term? Uh, the type of like stuff you still see today happening there because you know even be- even when it's happening behind closed doors, you know, there's still gotta be someone who will be that type of person who is just a shitbag. Excuse me, friends, but you know,
1: and it was happening to me, and and there was nowhere at that time there wasn't you know a hotline or a um. Um, an advisor who really was open to hearing that you were discouraged from sharing that you felt alone, yeah. isolated. You didn't; those um, channels were not being made obvious to you. They were more more being hidden from you. So you you were your message was to suffer in silence.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely something you still see today because you know. Uh, not only is Broadway still, still partly like that, because there are like uh, there are plays where people who have, I'm not talking a lot of stuff like the Me Too movement or something like Speaking Out, but there are plays that, well, there are plays that have that effect and still, you know, people are still cast because like, oh, you know, X did this to you know one of the co-stars and they still hire them because of you know it's their talent that they're hiring it's not the person that it's not the person who they want to hire it's their talent that they're bringing to the table sometimes
1: or their audience draw so a lot of-
0: draw, yeah it's
1: about money it's even
0: about- though yeah, yeah even though if there's someone is a horrible person in real life if they bring an audience to them or bring a very massive crowd to see them work, they would always go see, you know, that person, even if they know in their heart, this person is a truly despicable figure. Both, you know, well, maybe not both on stage, well, on stage, well, on stage or or behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. people will still see them because, you know, it's that person.
1: Right, and it wasn't being talked about, so a lot of things, People didn't know in the public. Didn't know um, who was harassing whom. They didn't know that um, people were being um, sexually harassed and raped. And um, and there, the people out in the general public didn't know that. But there were many people within the industry who did, and 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 who were also complicit and enabling that. That. Which is why the culprits or the people who are the predators are it's not just the people who are actually committing those acts. While it is them, it's also all of the enablers around them who are all um yesing, saying yes yeah. to to that and turning a blind eye. And that was a lot of what was happening back then. This is this is the mid nineteen eighties we're talking yeah. about. It was a very different time. Things have changed a great deal since that time. However, there is a lot more that needs to change. And we're seeing seeing this process unfold right before our eyes. But it's interesting because those experiences that I had at NYU, especially some of the encounters of homophobia that I had from my acting teachers, are what planted the seed in me. To create my solo show, hmm. the the anger and the the anger and the pain from that experience was the seed that ultimately drove me years later to to create a solo show around yeah. around some of those issues. So I'm sure we'll talk about that. Today.
0: Yeah, I was literally about to ask you uh, how did you get because I literally was going to segue into this segue right into the solo stuff is like now that you planted those seeds uh like not even though a lot of this stuff was like planting these seeds of just like being around people who could be disheartening and there could be people who could be very, very supportive and even you know that sort of like mindset how did you actually and the weird thing is that uh I tried to take your solo class uh, last year, but I think I couldn't have... it I didn't have enough credits or something like that or some other amount of credits. And I saw you, the people who were in the solo show and, you know, some of my friends were still in that too. And a lot of that work was, like, really incredible. And you told me, like, maybe... Like, maybe sometime either after the show or maybe even messaging me, it was like, this was, like, maybe one third of the stuff that they wrote. So in terms of working a solo show and having that mindset, like what is the process to go into a solo performance? Because a one person show is like literally one monologue, but it's like a monologue that's probably like maybe split into parts or something to, to, to that uh, nature. Because uh, John Lego John Mao, he has his own type of like one one-person show to do and it's hilarious and also very interesting to know because he's also talking about stuff that you know that he's experienced in, the, in, in his sort of thing. Uh I'm drawing blanks of other one-person shows but uh, but yeah it's and then it'd be like and then there would be like the one-person show that's kind of like very spoofed on which is basically only like five people will show up and this just like the one person who does like this very deep and not beatbox like 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 this poetry s type of thing where it's just like you don't understand why they are doing it so
1: yeah well there's all kinds of solo shows so it, it's interesting you mentioned john leguizamo because i i came up in new york in the mid 80s and 90s and that was a real uh there was a real explosion of solo work happening at that time so we had john leguizamo we had Whoopi Goldberg, who had a real tremendously successful solo show that was really the beginning of her career. Um, she started at the public theater doing a solo show, and then it, then it um, well, not the public, I'm sorry. It wasn't the public theater. It was a different uh, downtown, off-Broadway house. But she started there, and then her show moved to Broadway. Same thing happened with Leguizamo who started at the American Place Theatre, where I I have also done work, and then moved um, to Broadway later. And so you had John Leguizamo, you had Whoopi Goldberg, you had Anna Devere Smith with her documentary theater, Fires in the Mirror and Twilight Los Angeles, and then more beyond that. Um, And you had uh, people like Tim Miller from San Francisco um and uh marga gomez doing solo work so you had a whole plethora of amazing solo artists who um were really the the progenitors the people who came before wonderful people like sarah jones um today so um and there's many more that i that i could name so I was surrounded by a lot of that solo performance. And it was happening also in my community. My own friends started doing solo performance. So one of the things that I would say to people who are emerging artists or young artists, if there's something that you want to do, if you have a dream of creating a solo show, then either get yourself in a class that uh, is devoted to solo performance, or get yourself around people who are doing it. Yeah. So whatever that thing is, maybe it's not solo performance for you. Maybe it's directing, or maybe it's um, scenography, or maybe it's uh, costuming, or whatever area of the arts you want to be in. Get yourself around people who are doing it because you learn so much that way by being around other artists. So I had friends who were creating solo shows. Um, at the time, I remember I felt incredibly jealous of my friends because I was I was yearning to do it, but not sure how. And then I had some friends who were doing it and I I was so jealous of them, but I was around them and I, they were constantly talking with me about their work. I was reading drafts of their work. Yeah. Um, and so it's also a lesson too about those you feel jealous of move towards those folks not away from those folks
0: because yeah. those people
1: are the people that have something you need to learn so i i i did that um, i moved closer to those people and i learned so much from them about writing about performing so that's really how i got got itching to to um to do solo performance and then i after that, I also then took classes, took went and took class, and I took a great course about solar performance, um, and uh, I did my own work, and then I started from the from the I I took a few different courses in solar performance, and from those um, from those experiences, I started to perform excerpts of work that I was creating at small venues like Dixon Place and Here Arts Center, um, off-off Broadway venues, which were wonderful and really open to, to that work. So that was how I, that was my beginnings in solo performance. And then through those experiences, I started to form in my own mind ideas about the kind of solo show that I wanted to create. So there are many types of solo performance, as you were saying. So a lot of solo shows are sort of a patchwork of material on a theme where it's not necessarily a linear narrative. Um, where you just see maybe scenes from a person's life or different aspects of their life or their ideas. Maybe they, they always have an arc to them. They always have yeah. a beginning and end. in. They don't always tell a narrative story that has one protagonist and sort of that um, classic journey that a protagonist goes on. And then other solo shows do that they do tell you a, a story of one person. Yeah. And then there's other kinds of solo work. Solo work that's spoken word, uh, poetry types of uh, pieces, um, hip hop theater works, um, all kinds of uh, electronic and digital, digital interfacing solo work. Um, so there's so many different types. But I had realized from the shows that I had had seen and started reading that I wanted to do a solo show that told a narrative that had one protagonist and then many other um, supporting characters, Um, a villain and, and supporting roles and and, and, and various characters that the protagonist would meet along along the journey and um and sort of a journey of self-discovery and acceptance so my my play was called queer in the usa and so it focuses on one character whose name is johnny and he's 14 years old and he is he is a closeted uh young man in new jersey Uh, He grew up in Freehold, New Jersey, and he grows up at um, being teased relentlessly because when he sings, he sings much, he sings a lot like um, Barbara Streisand.
0: Yeah.
1: In a very in a soprano uh, pit in soprano register, and he but yet he dreams. Of being someone like Bruce Springsteen, who comes from Freehold, the same town that Johnny, my protagonist, was born in. So he is teased a lot and made fun of a lot in school for for the, for his for, for not only his perceived sexual orientation but for his gender identity too. Because when he sings, he sounds like a girl instead of sounding like what people think a boy is supposed to sound like. Yeah. So um, he basically, he runs away, and then he goes to New York and he meets a whole series of characters that help him on his journey of coming out. And in a fantasy sequence, he, he even meets the boss, Bruce Springsteen, himself. So um, and he falls in love, and, and, and he also meets um, a, woman, a woman who identifies as uh, a part of the Roma people a, a gy- what we would call a gypsy um, but they're they're known as the roma people and um she has a lot to teach him also along the way about identity and about um human rights yeah and human identity and his own sense of self and human rights so through these characters he he starts to find his true he starts to own his true voice. It was always there, but he starts to own it. Yeah. So, so I play all of these different roles. So there's eight different characters in the story, and I play all the different, different roles. Although You've the new scene is done. <laughs> so that's, that, that was how I got into writing the show. I think I, first I immersed myself in, in that art form, And then I, through that, developed an idea of the type of show that I wanted to create. Classes, and I experimented. And I started sort of brick by brick and step by step and little by little. And that's how everything really happens. There are no overnight successes.
0: and that's the great thing about theater is that there is no uh, right or wrong. There is no... It, theater is literally a freeing experience. You could have someone who is not the best of actors, but they could easily still have the the most okay performances and still show what they could do. Like, they could, you know, they could not be the best of actors. I'm not saying name. I'm not naming names, but, you know, I've seen this on film too. It's like, they cannot be the best of actors, but the director knows what type of style they can do. And there's like, hey, just do this. Just don't say anything, but, you know, just be more mindful about your presence. And so that sort of thing. And that's the great thing about theater, uh, theater too, is that you don't have to be a great actor, too, to be an actor. I mean, you have to be, you have to have some capable, you know, you have to have some capability of acting. You know, you have to have some background of, like, this is your line, say this line, not in a very flat monotone or something like that, or else your director will give you a high hell and high water. It was like, you know, put some emotion into it. Like, you know, you don't have to have, uh, what I'm trying to say is you don't have to have a acting background where it's like, oh, I'm, you know, like I'm from NYU or I'm from Columbia or school of acting or I went to uh, Stella Adler, uh, uh, studio, or I went to the you know, the Actors Studio, that sort of thing. You know, you could literally be a you know, like a teacher, like a legit, you know, someone who does teaching for a living, and go through a thing where it's like, oh, every weekend or so, I perform Claudius in something. You know, I perform the, the role of Claudius in in a, a Shakespeare at thing. I'm like, and you do this like every weekend, I'm like yeah, you know, it's just something I do for fun. You know? So yeah. Theater is a freeing and a fun experience, so it's like, and just doing theater allows you to like open up other doors, you know. For me, I could like I could, unless you could probably be helping me like full fundingly, like not like full fundingly, but like full mentoring me you on know, like how to do a solo show. I honestly think I could for not do like a solo show that isn't like an hour, and, like 90 minutes long, like maybe 45 minutes minutes, like something like that. Something that's like a very abridged take of my life. Mm-hmm. But theater has opened doors for me to do directing, uh, playwriting, sound design in some way. It makes, it made me appreciate doing set work a lot more than I did previously. Because when I did set work, I'm like, oh, this is set work, I gotta do all this. You know, I gotta, I gotta handle all this. But when I'm doing set work, I'm like, just give me some tools. Let me do what I need to do, and like five minutes later, anything that you need to do, I was like, right Uh Costume work, you know, even though I've never really done costume work, I do appreciate people who do costume work because you know that that takes a lot of credit to do. Uh, yeah, it, it's like theater has. And bring it back to what I was just saying before. Theater brings back, you know, bring, the theater opens up a lot more doors than you just realize because people, yeah. when they think. People, when they think of theater, they think of, oh, it's just acting on stage or something like that. It's more than just acting, which is, you know, it's, and what you just said is like, you know, especially with the people who, who you mentioned, uh, you know, your friends, the people you have uh, worked with in school, they helped you like literally almost step-by-step step into creating the show that, you know, that is a, like you just mentioned, you're playing eight characters, you know, that, that means like, oh, you need to do a quick costume change, like every single other scene. So, <laughs> so you don't have, or, you know, I assume, you know, uh there, you know, two characters can't be there at the same time, because if you do that, that's like, you know, legitimately hard to do. So
1: no, actually I had several scenes where two characters were there at the same time. Oh, wow. So Yeah. Uh, you can do, there's lots of techniques. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I also work on and teach in my solo solo performance classes. How you can how you switch from character to character and keep keep it clear about who you are in each moment, so that the audience can read the the change and understand that there's a dialogue happening between two people. Yeah, and, and sometimes. Sometimes there's no costume change at all, but it's a vocal and physical change that you make, or sometimes there's a very minimal costume change so that it allows the dialogue to flow freely. Um, But many things you said are so important in terms of theater creating. So one point that you're making about theater is that it's a collaborative art form. Yeah. Solo performance is a collaborative art form. So there were still people that helped me in my development process. I did When I created my solo show, I did a lot of readings. So I made sure that I had other people involved, getting feedback from other artists, people that I trusted and people that I respected. Coming to my readings, giving me feedback, talking with me about the work. I shared it. Um, with, with people in the theater company, the faux Real Theater Company, it's called, which is the company that I've been part of for more than 20 years. Yeah. I it with, with my friends, my mentors, all, all of my community, that the people that I trusted and respected. And, and so I got a lot of feedback. And I worked with a director. So I think in solo performance, especially when you've written your own work, it's very helpful to work with a director because you need that outside eye. Yeah. Um, so I had a very close relationship with a wonderful director. Um, and uh, I, the point is, is that I had other people in my life um, who, who I shared my work with. So even though it's called solo performance or solo theater, you're definitely not doing it all by yourself. Yeah, and you and I had to work with technicians and um, other people to do the tech and help me design the show, and so um, that was really important. At the same time, another important thing that you said is that as a, as somebody coming up in the theater, when you're in your process of learning and training, which hopefully never stops, yeah, you you want to expose yourself to as many areas as possible like you said even the areas you think you might not like at first like the technical side and set design and set building and lighting design and being a lighting technician and um all of the various aspects because when you do a solo show you're going to have some hand in all of that yeah so i did even though i had a director I needed to be able to work very closely with my director. I had to, I, I gave input on the costume design, on the set design, on the props, on lighting, on sound, it was all very collaborative. So having had some exposure to those things in my career, just as a student and just as a person who's curious about all aspects of the theater, were was very helpful to me um in in presenting and creating my own work so that's why i always do encourage people to expose themselves to as many areas of theater making as possible and the other thing i would say is i do think that training is important and that study is important, as in any field. If you want to be great at something, it helps to study it with good people. Yeah, That doesn't mean that you have to be doing it at NYU or Juilliard or Yale. Um, You can find some of the best people right in your own neighborhood sometimes. I think Brooklyn College is an example of that. And not I'm not own I'm not saying that because I teach there, but I'm, I'm saying that in recognition of my peers, the other faculty that I've met there who are incredibly talented. Um, and I didn't know that until I started working at Brooklyn College and saw who was there and what I was exposed to. Yeah. So it shows um, that that, Sometimes there's a lot of mythology about what we may have heard through the grapevine or heard from elders or read in a magazine article about what people say is the best. And I think it's really important to question that information because just because something is called the best by someone who... Wrote a magazine article, or by someone who went to a school twenty years earlier, doesn't mean that that situation is the best for you in your journey. So it's really important to look at things and question what you're hearing. I'm not saying that NYU and Juilliard and oh, of Hollywood course not. might not be wonderful for some people um but it doesn't mean that those those institutions are not the only um places where you can receive high quality training that is going to nurture you as an artist and in some cases they those may not be the places where you will find that
0: yeah uh picking up on that uh i did community theater a few summers ago i did a what to do about nothing as Virgis and the care and doing that for the summer was very enlightening because I never done community theater before I never done Shakespeare in a park before because it was legitimately in you know in uh, in the park uh, you know it was like legitimately in the park you know there was no set or anything there, there was a minimalistic set you know we only had fences around and stuff like that too uh, and Doing theater in in the CUNY scene, and this is why I want to bring up next is CUNY. CUNY theater has been, and again, Brooklyn College has great actors too, great performance. Well, great perform, great actors, actresses, performers, people who work technical theater, uh, people who work, you know, as stage managers, light designers, uh, sound designers. You know, Brooklyn College, like, even though. We just said it doesn't have to be for the best of the best. Brooklyn College does have some of the best people around because their their craft is so good, and it measures me how well, uh, how well a lot of this stuff does, just regardless. Especially you know, with the limited amount of time that you know some productions have, you know, some productions may go up in a month and they've been doing this thing. For like, they've been rehearsing for you know for the past like month or so, so they have like legitimately two months to get everything correct, and then the next and then the next production goes you know so forth and so on, especially if it's uh, the main stage production or if it's in the if it's or if it's in the the smaller black box theater or rather workshop theater we call it, mm-hmm. but it's still black box. I call it black box. Uh, you can't call it, hide that from me. in college. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you call the new workshop theater, I mean, the new artist workshop theater or what have you, it's a black box to me,
1: okay? Black box theaters are wonderful because yeah. they can transform into anything.
0: Yeah, and uh, like this, uh, like last year, I, uh, the two productions that we did in that thing, which was uh, Gloria, and we transformed it into a New York office, which looked quite beautifully, And then later it was like, Oh, it was a Starbucks, uh, thing. And then later it became a, uh, Los Angeles like agency where it's just like, you could just see the little nuances where it's like, Oh, this is a New York office as opposed to the, uh, Los Angeles office where it feels a lot more brighter because there's a lot more sunshine and all that stuff. And you know, the, 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 the next one was uh, Last Days of Judas Iscariot, and the, the set design itself was amazing because it was, it was like legitimately like a uh, MTA platform subway station. Whereas it's just like you see, it's like it, it it was like literally you were literally staying on the, a platform like that was mirroring an MTA um, subway station, and you know, unfortunately that was like one of the performances I couldn't see because I had work that time, so I was like. Work kind of like overshadowed my, uh, uh, you know, see the stuff I you know worked on to bring it into life because you know, again the technical side of theater. Uh, Anyway, uh, so yeah, it's a very weird segue to go into, but I, I know that when I first started uh, being taught by you, you were in the process of finishing up your PhD or in the process of or in the process of getting a PhD. And then when I spoke to you last, you kind of like, Oh, it's, I've already graduated. And you know, it's like, I've done a PhD all that stuff. Yeah, that is true. How how did you come into the process of, of going, you know what, I've done acting, but I want to teach people about acting. So yeah, how did you get into the process of becoming a teacher? It's like, especially with people who, especially theater, and, and this is another thing, theater professors really do the best in terms of they do, and sometimes, you know, you can have professors whose departments really doesn't really care about what they, you know, what they could do, you know. Uh, uh, I've dealt with departments in the past that have done that, whereas it's like they're kind of like very, neat. it's like what you said before with the the uh, NYU was like, they really didn't have anybody there to really help you. So there are professors who were trying to help you, but their departments really couldn't really help them if they really could, if that really made sense. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. going from an act, so going from acting into wanting to be a
1: theater professor, how did that switch happen? Uh, Well, Let's see. I would say that it was a development more than a switch. So, so I, I've always seen my career as one that includes acting and directing and writing and producing, and that is never going to stop for me. But, I all, but what happened was that you know, when, when, when you start out at, as a teenager like I did. You know, I did my first professional production at 14 years old. And it was from that moment on that I decided I wanted to be an actor. That's a long time ago for me now. And as you grow and change as a person, the, dream, the, the way in which you dreamed about something when you were 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, really can change and and morph as you become get into your 20s and then your 30s and then your 40s and beyond yeah. so that's what happened for me was when i was young and started out as an actor everything my reasons for wanting to act had a lot to do with me they yeah. were a it was because I had stories to tell, and I wanted to play roles, and I wanted to have this experience for myself. I loved the idea that the work would entertain people, or that the work might enlighten people. And that was always part of it for me. Um, and, I, and, and in fact, the very first play, um, or one of the very first plays that I ever did, was about um, environmental science and about ecology, um, because it was about the effects of deforestation on global warming. Uh, and so that element of educating the audience or teaching people something new was always present for me. But as a young person, I was much more focused on myself. yeah, and My theater work gave me, the feeling that it gave me. As I grew, decade by decade, I started to feel two things. One was that I noticed as I got older, especially as I got into my 30s, I started to get a sense myself as a person, that was encompassing things that were outside of me. So I started to become more interested in my community. I started to become more interested in people that were younger than me. That's what happens as you get older. You start to identify differently. So as instead of somebody that is supposed to be the learner, You start to think of yourself differently. You start to amass a lot of experience in your life and you amass education and experience. And I had started to do all these plays and I had built, start, built a career. I was supporting myself as an actor, which had been a dream of mine for years. But what happens when you achieve that dream? Then what?
0: Yeah. What's next? It's like, it's, it's, it's like. I know it's like uh, the it's like being an actor, especially if you want if you want to be a film actor and you win the Oscar. It's like okay, what's next? And it's like if you win the Oscar and you happen to get the Golden Globe, you know maybe it's the Emmy, and then maybe and especially as a theater, it's like oh you want to get the Tony Award. So if you do get that EGOT, you know thing, what is next? And what is next as an actor is like. The, the only thing that's next as an actor for if, at that standpoint will probably be like a lifetime achievement or board. but that's only like when you're about to retire and stuff like that too, so.
1: And that's why if you talk to most actors who, who um, have had careers where they win those types of awards, they will tell you that the worst thing to do is to become an actor because you want to win those kinds of awards because there's far too much sacrifice work and work um, involved in becoming an actor uh, that that would never you would just winning those awards as as your goal would never sustain you yeah all that you have to go through um, and do in order to to, to to be a professional actor so so that's why I always tell people don't don't get into the art arts because you want to win awards. It's it's not it's not the reason to create art, and it's not a great place. It's not going to give you the the, the deepest foundation from which to tell stories. You know.
0: Yeah, the re, the real answer that to that question is just do it for the money. No, I'm kidding. Like, <laughs> you do it for the money. No, I'm I'm actually kidding. Okay. It's actually for the it's actually for the art. Okay, but if you want to do it for for the money, it, it pays to do it. Money sometimes, but then you could do the art that you want to do with that paycheck. So it, it actually does kind of pay out in the long run. So
1: it can, it depends, and that figures into my reasons also for teaching. Because what happened was I started to see the world differently and see my place in it differently, and so I wanted to share what I knew with people that were younger than me. I started to become much more interested in sharing and passing on something to the next generation. So I wanted to share the knowledge that I had. I also started to become much more, um, much more focused on in what ways can theater and the arts really create change in the world? In what ways can the arts um, and theater Challenge people's perceptions. Challenge oppression. Challenge um, challenge harmful ideas and and uh, oppressive practices and behaviors. How how can we really use theater to challenge uh, the status quo? To yeah. challenge uh, racism. To challenge homophobia and transphobia. To challenge um, ableism challenge all, all of these forms of oppression. So I became interested in people younger than me. I became interested in using theater as a tool to help dismantle oppression. I became also aware that as I started to support myself as an actor, there were rare occasions when I got to do work that I really believed in strongly that was yeah. The kind of work that I thought was challenging status quo. But far too often, I had to do work like commercials or, or you know, something to sell a product or um, things that were less interesting to me, like doing, I did a lot of print work at one point in my career. I um, uh, did commercials. I did, you know, um, emceeing and hosting of events. And that, those things sometimes were fun. I always learned a lot about the industry and about how, um, how work was made. Um, but it wasn't, those things weren't the reason that I got into acting and theater. I wanted to really tell stories that I thought were deeply meaningful and transformative. So while I was supporting myself as an actor, Sometimes I felt that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be because yeah. there were so many things that I had to do in my acting that were purely for money, and so these things combined the, the, the commercial side of um, the commercial side of the business uh, where I, where I didn't always get to tell stories that were stories that I really wanted to tell and that really yeah. reflected my own humanity and. Um, and people, and, and, and the larger society that, that I'm a part of. And I started to think about people younger than me, and I started to think about how theater can create change. And that is why, that is how I got into teaching. And that's what made me go back to school and get my master's degree. Um, and I went to school, I went back to NYU, but in a different division. So yeah. Instead of Tisch School of the Arts, I went into the Steinhardt School of uh, Education, and I uh, enrolled in a fantastic program, NYU's Educational Theater Program. Uh, and, And by the way, NYU, you know, was always a really challenging investment to me because it was so expensive and I I worked to support myself through both my undergrad and graduate and I also um, took a lot of loans out to go to NYU. So it wasn't something that someone else paid for for me. It's something I ended up paying for myself. But despite that, I thought that it was really worthwhile to go back and get a master's degree. And that opened my eyes up to teaching. It opened my eyes up to what I could do as a theater teaching artist. So then I started working in New York City public schools, um, working with K through 12 students, um, work bringing theater into the classroom. I, a lot of times, I was working with other drama teachers um, to help develop them professionally. Uh, and introduce new and innovative approaches to drama teaching. Uh, so, sometimes I was in drama classrooms doing that, but I was also infusing drama into other fields such as math, such as science, such as social, English. No. So I went into all kinds of classrooms and used drama uh, to, to teach other subjects, but also to enrich students through drama so I would was helping students gain skills and knowledge and performance experience in theater and at the same time also helping them reach academic goals in math social studies and a lot of subjects across the curriculum
0: now how was that experience uh, for you for those who aren't like technically part of theater like people who are just you know who are suffering through a math or they're just doing social studies or, you know, it's uh, a history class, it's an English class, you know. When you're infusing theater aspects into those type of classes, like what is those type of experiences like for those who aren't like part of theater? Is it like very?
1: Amazing experiences usually. Usually they're amazing because first of all, theater is, It's theater is a way, is an approach. So using drama, using storytelling, using narrative, using character, working in a role, it's a way of learning. It's a way, it's a way of sharing knowledge. It's a way of imparting knowledge. And it's a way of taking in knowledge. It's a transmissive process. It's a process of transmission, intake and outtake using the mask of character, using the tools of story to create a fictional world or a fictional circumstance. But operating in a fictional circumstance can be the most educational thing. That's why when you have an experience, you know, this is some of the experience that students have when they do um, the high school play or community theater because if you're doing a period piece for example um if you're doing uh something set in um england in the 1600s or in um latin uh latin america or in buenos aires in 1946 for example um you know you have to immerse yourself in that history. You have to understand it culturally, politically, socially. You learn so much through theater. That's why theater is always an interdisciplinary art form. Because when you, when you really practice theater and engage in theater, you, by its very nature, theater is always about something. So you're always learning about the context, the history, the situation that the play is about. So that, that quality of theater um, is one of the things that can make it very transformative. Um, and when you, when you consciously and intentionally apply that into learning settings, you can um, not only help students learn academic subject matter, But you're also giving them an amazing arts experience that they may not have had otherwise. So a lot of schools that I did my teaching artist work in were arts that had were schools that had been labeled as arts poor, where Uh, they um, where they had no drama teacher, where they had sometimes had no arts classes whatsoever. So without a teaching artist, a theater teaching artist bringing theater into the classroom many students wouldn't have experienced any art whatsoever yeah let alone the fact that they may not have experienced theater so what happens is you open up students eyes to what theater is one of the things that you said earlier in our discussion today is that theater isn't just acting it's so many yeah,
0: things so much more
1: and that's what they discover that oh you know there's there are students that I worked with in, in schools that sometimes had no interest in, in acting, um, but we had them working behind the scenes. We had them working as playwrights, or we had them working to design sets, or we had them working in some other capacity of theater, which opened their eyes up to the, this art form being about a way of expressing yourself that, includes acting, but does not necessarily have to be acting.
0: Yeah.
1: So, usually it becomes a pretty magical experience for students that makes learning more engaging for them, and that also helps students retain a lot more of the information because it's embedded in narrative and story. And story is the very first way that we learn in our lives. When, When your caregiver does... Peekaboo. Yeah. First I'm there, then I'm not. First I'm there, then I'm not. That's a story. It has a cause and effect, an event. So story and narrative is a way that we understand the world, and and it's the way that we um, build an understanding of the world. And it begins in infancy. So it's a very powerful medium. So it's. So it becomes an, an interesting experience because many times the students never have thought that they might be, have an interest in theater, and then a teaching artist works with them, and they discover they discover new possibilities for themselves. So, so it's a, it's a it was an amazing and extraordinary experience, and that's what that's what made me want to keep teaching.
0: Yeah, and to bounce off of that. I am one of, of Manuel's, well, I don't want to say best students, but I want, to, I want to say one of the most prospective, yeah, prospective students, because uh, let me give you a, a little example, at least two little examples of how Manuel teaches. Two years ago, as I mentioned, I took acting workshop, one, two, or just acting workshop, and Manuel was a teacher, and at first, I didn't know much about acting, you know. the I mean, I knew acting, it's just I didn't know like what the brass tacks and stuff like that was, especially since, you know, during that time, I was very disillusioned with acting in general. So, you know, I had just come off of, you know, a couple of years at a bad place, just both emotionally and academically. So, doing a, their work in that class, Manual really helped me, not only as an actor, but also understand me more as a uh, performing artist. Because you know, there will be uh, exercises that Manual do that will be very joyful. You know, like oh, bounce the bounce the invisible ball around, or just bounce the actual ball around. And then, as we were doing that, Manual will just be like, Oh, this is not a ball. This is not a ball. And I'm like, you know, it's like building up your hand to eye coordination, stuff like that too. And, uh, and two years ago, what what yeah, almost two years ago now, uh, manual actually in, enro- uh, engrossed me into the idea of comedy cause we were doing our final which was essentially hey we gotta do a final song now and our final was essentially perform a scene from a monologue or perform a scene from a play, that sort of thing so it's very you know basic acting thing you know it's like it's a basic acting uh, thing see how much stuff you've learned for the past like few months or so my my uh, my scene was to do a scene from the odd couple classic you know classic play by itself and you know when i read the thing i was like uh, i would probably be like be oscar or something like that because you know i, I look like a swim sort of slob but for some reason manual decided hey brian you will work best as felix because you know it's like you look very presentable and you know, all that stuff and then and of course you know when i was doing that thing i was coming down off a very bad flu so i was like legitimately so like the walking dead where it's just like i wasn't sure if i was still of uh, like contagious but at the same time i wasn't sore if i was like just like uh of sound in mind i'll just put it that way and Manuel, he was like brian i'm just so glad you did everything so good you know it's like i'm i'm proud that you proud you know power through that stuff and all that you know all that thing And a year later, when I was picking up stuff for uh, classes for that fall semester, I noticed that he was doing a comedy work, a comedy class. And I was like, whoa, Emmanuel was doing a comedy class. Okay. I I really hope that's just a joke, but I'm going to take this. So I took it. And oh my God, it was like the most fun experience I ever had because not only did it, it opened up to stuff that i learned more about comedy especially about you know uh the type of characters you would see in a comedy but you know uh especially when it's like oh you're playing the fool, the straight man or something like that and it's like and when manual teaches comedy when manual teaches how to perform comedy that sort of thing it's eye-opening because Manuel and I actually came up with an idea of like what my final performance would be. I would just do one performance of a monologue, but the other performance is a, like a 10 minute piece or so of a, almost like a one man type of performance, where he's like, I'm like legitimately doing my best, uh, best to be, not like that 10 minutes, but like seven minutes or so of
1: physical comedy
0: physical comedy uh, as a physical comedian and i will say that as a physical comedian it is hard to do a lot of this stuff where people do like pratfalls that sort of thing especially when you're doing it on a uh hardwood floor whereas it's like when you fall you're gonna fall and hurt your you know, ass or tailbone and whatnot and you gotta feel it Friday the next day whereas it's like i should not do those things on a hardwood floor if there's a mat on there and i should do it on the mat but i should not do a thing on the hardwood floor but uh, I, I was like, I wouldn't really do that on your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do that on your own, you know, on a, on a nice, safety bed and stuff like that, too. But
1: uh, you insisted on doing that all that way, and yeah. I talked to talk with you about working on that.
0: Yeah, and manual. When I'm getting gains from manual, it's very eye-opening because, you know, here I am still unsure how to do this comedy scene especially because the comedy scene of the physical comedy it's like it's all about the actions you take as a physical comedian it's not about oh it's uh it's not about the setup it's about the actions how you take it as the physical comedian. because you know the action could be like oh my cell phone doesn't work so i'm just like you know you could do with like all that stuff right like very sporadically, you know, very ham, just like do a very full ham. Or you could just do a very nuanced, whereas it's just like a lot of it is this subdued type of comedy where it's like you don't know where the person, you to, where you're seeing the person doing now, you're not sure what they're doing next. Mm-hmm. But to make this long story short, or trying to make this long story shorter, uh, Manuel's guidance allowed me to really open up how to do this physical comedy piece. And I always am grateful for his guidance into being one of the best teachers I ever actually had with acting, but also in comedy in general.
1: Thank you, Brian. I loved that you did that piece, that the physical comedy piece was one of the most exciting pieces um, in, in the evening, I thought. Um, there were, they all were wonderful in their own ways, each thing was wonderful, but your physical comedy piece was so unique because it didn't rely on words to create the comic effect. And like you said, you had to bring in your physicality as the action that you take that creates the comedy. So it was your sense of rhythm, your sense of timing, your sense of shape of, of the body, your sense of movement, your sense of um, spatial relationships and kinesthetic response, how you picked up on impulses and physically related with props as well. So those elements of comedy are so important and physical comedy highlights that. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing to see because we, we get to experience laughter, um, laughter that is elicited without, without the, the artist, without the performer relying on words. And um, somehow it gets to a, a seed of-
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, to talk about physical comedy, but, or at least comedy and drama, because there are great comedians that are you know very funny and there are great great comedians who aren't really that i mean they are funny but their comedic talents are relied on like the nuances that we just talked about where it's just like it's uh like one of the funny, like a great scene that we that you showed us was the the Trying to remember which one of the scenes that were which was hilarious was uh uh oh the the Peter Sellers scene where where he, it's like literally him talking it's like okay the thing about the Peter Sellers especially in Dr. Streams is that even though he's playing two characters it's like what you just said before with uh artists is that there are just different mannerisms and body languages to those two characters one character he's playing a you know army captain you know very british army captain so he's just playing a very british army captain step up with that, that sort of thing the other character he's playing dr strange of is a very crazy german scientist so he has a lot of this crazy german uh and that sort of thing and the last character he plays is the american president so he has to be more presidential very very commanding in his voice someone like, peter sellers is doing that sort of stuff in that movie it's like, oh, it's not like ha-ha funny, but like after a while, once you start seeing that stuff, it's like, oh, I understand that that, that type of stuff that Peter was doing because, you know, even though it's not, you're not very, even though people are like, oh, it's going to be, oh, Peter Sellers, he's got to be doing some rocky comedy, he's got to probably be like, you know, something like an uh, inspector show, that sort of thing. Oh, it's much more different. It's much more about. The, the nuances that you usually do encounter that really work well, and there are actors who do the pratfalls and that sort of thing that too, and they do wonders with that, and you know, uh, some great kind of people who do that stuff, like Chris Foley, you know, rest his Soul, Phil Hartman, uh, Jack Black, uh, Kristen Wiig, and, you know, practically people who are on SNL, they could do all that stuff, but they you know there are things about their company that's like their nuances that really do make them funny you know it, it isn't about oh you know uh christian rick is got to be doing playing some drunk but if you watch her performance in Bridesmaids she's doing stuff that is like very hilarious and the same thing with melissa mccarthy you know even though she's playing uh like this very raunchy type of character there are like body languages or looks that he would just give that would just be hilarious by some other person's standards because people will be laughing at the raunchiness of some person, especially as for a comedy. I mean, you know, comedic thing. But then there are people who will be laughing at the, the little nuances that someone would just do, and like, you know, you know, uh, and, you know, and this thing, uh, the thing about comedy that always speaks to me is about making people laugh by not making people laugh if that makes sense
1: yeah it makes perfect sense never never um never going for the laugh yeah it comes out of something deeper that's that's what's funny so trying to make people laugh can be deadly
0: yeah uh like a hilarious scene just to wrap this up though is uh John Hughes. John Hughes always made hilarious scenes and sometimes become comedy. and I actually John Hughes was, you know, Thanksgiving just passed by the time I filmed this, so and when I think of holiday things, John Hughes this comes to mind. And one of the funniest things that he wrote was uh, the monologue from Planet Strange, or All-Mail where Steve just like cursing out everybody and, everything. and he's just doing that just to make people laugh. But the punchline to that thing is the lady who is the counterest. And she's like, oh, well, you don't have this, you have that. And she just looks at him with a very straight face and and with a straight face and goes, well, you're fucked. And it's, the, it's like, there's that punchline. Even though Steve Martin is being the very skinny Steve Martin we all know, there's this punchline. You know you're going to laugh a lot more. And that's the punchline that pays off. And with comedy, you don't have to aim for that comedy. It's comedy by not doing comedy. And that's how I kind of learned with this, is that you don't think about what your actions is going to be. It's more along the lines of what impulse you got to do. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's, <laughs> all, that's, that's all I could say with comedy, because I, comedy is like something I hold and in, dear to my heart.
1: Absolutely. So there's spontaneity in comedy, you know, and because it comes out of deep, deep needs. You know, some, some, some people suggest that comedy and tragedy are very closely linked and that and that sometimes the stakes are even higher in comedy. It's like tragedy tragedy on high speed yeah. um, becomes comedy. So it it's, comes out of the character's needs Which is why a lot of our, a lot of our acting technique also was part of our comedy work
0: too. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff really does help you uh, get the mindset of what a comedian does, like both on stage and off stage, because you think, oh, just because they're a comedian, they just do, you know, what have you, they just do, something that makes you uh laugh and stuff like that but
1: and that's why some of our greatest comedians are also our greatest dramatic actors like someone like robin williams
0: yeah and there's robin williams there's bill Hader, there's uh, mm-hmm. steve martin uh eddie murphy when he does a dramatic role it's amazing mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, brian cranston uh Brian and he did a, a hilarious role with uh, Hal on uh, Malcolm in the Mill, and then a few years later, he just starts doing Breaking Bad, and you just kind of see that, you know, there's that little stuff that he learned along the way where it's just, like, knows how to carry a performance. And then there's, like, his other co-star, Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul is a, is a hilarious guy on the show, but when he starts doing that, like, media stuff, I mean media that meaty stuff on the show, it's amazing to see because it's like a, a development of that switch where it's just like, this is something about people who are naturally funny, who could be who are also naturally great dramatic work stuff, so. They
1: tap into our hearts, you know? That's that's what the greatest comedians and the greatest dramatic actors do. They tap into their, their vulnerability and their deepest humanity, and we love them for it, you know?
0: and on that note i think this is a great way to end this episode because this is going to be like one of the longest episodes i've done now because one i'm talking to one of my mentors so that's even much more of a precedent for me i mean precedent for me uh i usually do like three questions but i think the best question to ask for those who are still watching advice and this is something that we were just talking about before before we started recording which was you know, my pe- the people who do watch the show or people who do like to watch me ramble on or at least talk with people and ramble, something like that, but <laughs> I kid, though. Know. The people who do watch the show are people who are in the theater, or, I mean, creative arts, performing arts, actors, actresses, writers, directors, what have you. This list is going to uh, Those who are still watching, what is your advice to those who are essentially emerging artists?
1: My advice? is work creates work. Work leads to work, which leads to more work, which leads to more work. So create, make stuff. Make stuff now, make stuff today. In your home, use the tools around you, use the people around you, use the things around you, draw from your own life and create something. Create a three-minute monologue, Create, improvise. Record yourself and improvise and develop a piece that way. Um, Take a piece of fine art, go on Google Images, and create a piece based on a painting that you love or an image that strikes you. Something hilarious or something tragic. Look at the things that are around you in your own life. Your stories are there. Start making things, even if they're little. Don't go for perfection. Perfection is the enemy of the good. Perfection is the enemy of art. Perfection is the enemy of the good. To to be an artist, you have to be an artist. To be an artist, you have to make art, make something. Don't be perfectionistic about it. Don't, Don't say, Oh, it has to be perfectly edited and perfectly fine tuned before I'm going to share it with anyone in the world. And start to share things. Start, you can share things initially with people in your community, with people that you trust, with people that, that you know understand you, and you can work out from there. But I think especially right now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and the pandemic of systemic racism that we're facing in our nation um, and, the, and the suffering that is happening in our nation we, it is very easy to feel cut off from everyone else and to feel especially as a theater person that you don't have the tools around you to make something yeah it's really important to, to make whatever you can you know if you know if this is the time to say hey, I never was into puppetry, but I'm gonna try to create some puppetry and do it on Zoom. You know, time to experiment with those new forms that you never thought you might, but here you are at home, um, now's the time to do it. So draw on yourself, draw on the materials that are around you and start to make things and put things out in the world. Because when you make something, that leads to another opportunity to make something else. So someone sees it, and they're interested in you developing it further. When someone sees it, and they're interested in partnering with you to create the next installment of it, you know, when you put yourself out there, that is how you begin to attract collaborators, to attract attract opportunities, attract people who are interested in you, and it helps you take the next step. So that's my biggest piece of advice for people who are emerging artists is don't wait until you're in the mood and don't wait until everything is perfect before you, because nothing is ever going to be perfect. If you wait until things are perfect, you will be waiting a lifetime. So art is about the imperfect it is about our vulnerability our humanity in letting ourselves be imperfect that's what's fascinating and interesting
0: yeah and on that note uh this has been episode five yeah episode five of season four uh thank you again Manuel, for taking at least an early afternoon of your day uh, to talk about not only your experiences as an actor, but also as a professional teacher too uh especially now you're talking to one of the uh, Brooklyn College staff members here so you know
1: uh thank you Brian uh, uh and this podcast is an example of someone getting out there and creating their own work and really happy and proud of you for creating this this podcast and it it has been such a pleasure to be your teacher
0: (sighs) thank you and everyone who is still watching please stay safe be well and, and of course wear a damn mask